Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I have the distinct pleasure today to have with me the two editors of the book titled The Worst Military Leaders in History, published by Reaction in 2023. I have John Jennings and Chuck Steele with me to help present a rogues gallery of the worst military leaders in history. This is a fascinated, edited fascinating, I'm sorry, edited volume that goes through 15 different leaders. It's quite a difficult task um, to tell a historian, pick the worst military leader and explain why. Um, But Chuck and John, thank you both for putting this together and being here to tell us all about it. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Before we dive into the book, would you mind each introducing yourselves and explaining sort of how this book came to be, why you decided to write it, why write it together? Uh, well, I'll start. Uh, this is John Jennings, uh, and uh, I'm a uh, professor of history at the United States Air Force Academy. I've uh, been here uh, for quite a long time. Um, uh, my, my specialty uh, is, is actually Asian history, Japanese history, but, uh, you know, um, kind of a case of when in Rome. Uh, I've uh, developed an interest in military history over the years and, and, and taught some of it as well. So, uh, that's uh, partly why why uh, I'm into this project. Yeah. And this is Chuck Steele here. Um, yeah, I, I was hired uh, about 18 years ago here after working for four years at, at the United States Military Academy at West Point, uh, where I pretty much uh, taught military history at almost every semester that I've been here. Uh, my interests are oceanic history, military history, and Russian history. And, uh, you know, as far as the, the topics and all, it's, it, we, we've had a lot of really interesting conversations with with colleagues, visiting professors uh, and others uh, about who, who they think the worst commanders are. I mean, the, the, the best commanders, it, it, the numbers tend to be a little bit uh, smaller than the worst commanders. I mean, wor- worst commanders, everybody's got... Uh, a favorite worst commander, it seems like. So uh, to, to 
you know, go go back to you know a little bit more about why uh, why the book came about. Um, you know, yeah, we've just you know chat, chatted with one another from time to time about this. But anyway, the 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 idea of the topic itself it was you know sort of the you know invention being the mother of necessity uh, that the publisher uh, contacted us and uh, expressed an interest in doing a book of military biography. And so we thought, oh, military biography, uh, you know, it's been done to death. Uh, it's been around since Plutarch. So uh, we really had to rack our brains. What what could we do that's going to be different and, and uh, uh, you know, so, something a little bit more creative? So kind of based on, you know, that, that you know, we, we've, you know, sort of t- t- chatted with one another about, you know, our, our sort of pet peeves for, you know, for worst uh, military leaders, it just you know, kind of thought, oh, you know, I wonder if anybody's ever done this uh, this sort of topic seriously, and uh, uh, we found uh, to our our surprise that um, uh, not really. You know, they're, they're like kind of top, worst ten lists and that sort of thing on on uh, uh, history, uh, uh, you know, like a, a, a discussion lists and things like that. Um, there are some social science books on uh, military failure, kind of at an institutional level, but uh, nobody had really looked at at it from a leadership perspective. And so, you know, it it was a little bit tongue in cheek when we started, but we realized that uh, this actually does have a lot of value. Uh, you know, it's everybody always studies the best, but you know, our our contention is uh, that that people can learn equally from from the worst, just as you know, one can learn from success. One one can and should learn from failure. Mm, very much so. Thank you both for giving us that context and introduction to the book. And on that point of kind of wait, we all have these pet peeves of who's the worst one. I kind of came into it going, oh, I know what I would decide as a worse military leader. Maybe I even had my own candidates for profiles to be included. And then, of course, was immediately confronted, as readers are with the book, of, hang on, what does it actually mean to be a bad military leader? How do we determine worst? What are those criteria? So how did you both think through this question and make some decisions? Well, I, in, in part, I, I think this will kind of lead into something else, uh, talking about how the, the chapters were divided because we created our our own categories that after reading the essays that we felt um, that, that basically they fell into, you know, they, they lent themselves to, to categorization um, as, as noted when we talk about sort of the content that as far as frauds and politicians, other things that sort of get in the way. But um, I just want to throw one thing in there about this is in our military history courses here, we tend to break military activity down into three levels. Uh, we talk about the strategic level of war, the operational level of war, and the tactical level of war. And so each one of those things requires uh, different competencies or some expertise. Um, and so it, it's you know, when, when you say what makes someone bad, it, you, you can fail at, at any one of these levels, at all three of these levels. Um, you know, context is is tremendously important in all of this. I mean, uh, yeah, just to bring things into to modern times, Vladimir Putin is not commanding anyone on the battlefields of, of Ukraine, but 
uh, it was his decision to push people into that uh, arena. You know, he's the one who at the strategic level of war is, is, is responsible. And so, you know, we could evaluate him as a strategist, uh, as, a, as a military leader, even though he's a political figure, uh, and he would get very poor marks. Uh, and then you can work your way on down. Uh, and, and because there's enough failure to go around, there are enough people uh, that, that, that have demonstrated that they're something less than competent. Which uh, you know le- leads into um, you know uh, uh, you know the the uh, the question of how how, how the book was organized um, that that Chuck mentioned. So uh, we we went in without really any preconceptions about the qualities that make uh, uh, a a good or or well in this case a bad military leader. Uh, our, our charge to our contributors was basically pick the, the, the person that you think is the worst military leader in history and write a 15 page essay explaining why that person's the worst. Um, so we didn't, you know, give anybody any, you know, guidance about, uh, whom they should pick. And we, we, because what we wanted to do was to see what everybody came up with and then kind of organically from that distill, you know, what, what kind of lessons, you know, we learned from the essays in terms of, of, you know, some of the traits that make bad leaders. So it was, you know, if, if you will, kind of a ground up, uh, uh, sort of approach rather than top down. Hmm. So what categories did you end up sorting, um, the 15 profiles into and how did you decide on them? Well, we, we, uh, you know, we, we basically sat down, we, we went through the, the essays again and, you know, we thought, okay, let's, what's the, 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 the salient feature that makes this person, you know, the, the worst military leader in history. And so the thing is, you know, all 15 have traits, you know, across categories, but what we did was we picked, you know, what's, what's sort of the defining uh, trait in our view that makes them the worst. And so, um, on that basis, uh, we came up with five categories. So, uh, the first one is criminals. And so in our view, these, these are three leaders whose salient feature was not just that their armies were, uh, um, uh, you know, you know, poorly led and ill-disciplined, but these were leaders who went a step further and actually, undertook criminal behavior themselves or encouraged criminality uh, in their their soldiers. Uh, the second category was frauds. So these were um, uh, three leaders who, um, you know, their, their, their abilities and their achievements certainly didn't match their, their reputation. Sometimes their reputations were sort of given to them, uh, you know, in some cases, their reputations were sort of self-generated, but uh, they certainly, their performance certainly didn't match uh, their reputations. Um, A third category is what we call the clueless. Uh, And so, you know, our contention is a great commander is one who has situational awareness, right? Understands the lay of the land, understands his, the capability of his forces, understands as much as he can about the enemy. The clueless were people who, you know, didn't have any of that situational awareness and essentially, uh, um, you know, uh, got, got into disaster as a result of that. 
Um, the fourth category we call politicians. So, uh, you know, generals uh, have, have been engaged in politics since the beginning of time. But uh, the distinction we made was that, you know, I think political general uh, tends to have a bad connotation, but it really depends. Uh, you know, Eisenhower, for example, as we, we mentioned, was a political general, but he was a political general in the best sense that he had the political skills to hold the allied coalition on the Western front together, you know, and, and go to victory. Um, uh, in, in, in this case, we, we define the politicians as military leaders who were politicians first and leaders second. You know, they, they were either people who, uh, you know, basically got their leadership, military leadership position as a result of their political position and were unqualified, or they were people who were trying to use military success to further their political ambitions. Uh, and then the last category is bunglers. Uh, and so these are uh, uh, three leaders who uh, were uh, uh, just, you know, basically sort of heedlessly uh, uh, led their forces uh, to disaster. They weren't necessarily losers. Uh, General Nogi, for example, who commanded the Japanese forces at Port Arthur in the Russo-Japanese War. I mean, he, you know, his, he, he won the battle, but uh, wound up getting you know, tens of thousands of his own troops slaughtered through his, uh, his, his inability to adjust to the situation. Hmm. So then thinking of those categories, mm. um, you've already mentioned a few examples of kind of who fits into them. Were there any leaders that almost made it into the book, but didn't quite? Well, I, I, we didn't assign people or we, what we what we received uh, was was pretty much at the discretion of of the contributors. Um, I'll, I'll say there were a number of, of people that I would have expected to have seen essays on um, and and, you know, not paying too much a, a attention to, to, to what others have said, but I did pay attention to a, a couple of, of the reviews, but one in particular uh, from Sir Lawrence Friedman, who was the head of the War Studies Department uh, at King's College uh, when, I, when I was a student there many, many years ago. Uh, so I was interested to, to see what he said, but that was it, it was sort of, a, you, you could anticipate the, the, the criticism of why aren't these other people on the list? Um, and that's... It, it, to be expected, as I, said, I think this is one of those things when we talk to, to colleagues, um, you know, everyone has sort of their, 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 their favorite worst general. And maybe it's something about dealing with, with historians. Uh, I think in some cases, you know, people might say that some of these, these characters might seem a bit obscure, um, or maybe for the time that there were people who would have stood out as, as more obvious choices. Uh, but for whatever reason in our studies, these seem to be the people that just, you know, take us in this direction that we identify something, uh, you know, speak for myself, you know, I, you identify something in there um, that that is is particularly, you know, galling. So. Great. Thank you for explaining that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Thinking about the three levels um, that you described earlier, the tactical, operational, and strategic, it was interesting for me reading this to see that there were a few examples amongst the 15, for example, Nathan Bedford Forrest and George Custer, of people who might be considered kind of on one of those levels, maybe tactically, to be 
a hero to be you know in the front lines of the newspapers for good reasons um but also on a strategic level really show some quite bad decisions to really be a bad military leader um how do you both sort of understand how one person can embody both of these attributes on the different levels well yeah i think again you know looking across uh the the levels of war i i I chose David Beatty as, as, as my subject. And uh, early in his career, he's a, a remarkably brave and admirable figure. He does you know, wonderful things when it comes down to physical courage and actually leading people in combat. Uh, when his responsibilities grow, uh, he, he's not equal to those tasks. And one one. One figure who didn't make our list that I would have expected uh, is is our, our American Admiral William Halsey. Uh, in 1942, uh, you know the the Halsey Doolittle raid, a number of raids against the Japanese when the United States was was really sort of you know just just holding on by our fingernails. Uh, he was remarkable. He was exactly what the United States needed. He was a very aggressive commander. You know, fast forward to 1944. Um, and now, you know, his command is much larger and he's, 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 you know, when you think about the complexity of operations, now it's not just two carriers or one carrier. Um, now he's operating with an entire fleet and he gets baited into, to chasing uh, a bunch of empty Japanese aircraft carriers that, that imperils a landing force at Leyte Gulf. And so, you know, it's it quite, you know, you, you can indeed be, be quite good at one level of war. Uh, but as you move up, you know, into, into the next level, the, the challenges might be just too much for that individual to master. Um, and so I think, you know, as you, as you mentioned, someone like Custer is incredibly brave and very successful uh, in the American Civil War. Uh, but, you know, those traits did not serve him well, uh, you know, in a different set of circumstances. And so I think that's, you know, one of the things about this is, is kind of understanding the context under which or around which, you know, we're, we're dealing with these, these characters in, in these particular chapters. I guess, too, uh, for, from my point of view, uh, I'm a little bit leery about using the word hero uh, in this context. Um, you know, certainly, what, you know, a, a Beatty or a Custer or a Bedford Forrest or the, the person that I wrote about, uh, a, a fellow in the Russian Civil War named Baron Ungern Sternberg, they all possessed a certain physical courage. Uh, but to, to me, heroism is, is I think there's more to it than that. I think heroism, you know, there's there should be a moral courage uh, to, to go along with that. And, you know, frankly, these leaders, um, you know, the, the, you know the, the, they, had, they had a physical courage, but, you know, the, again, this, this sort of an enormous uh, uh, egotism as well. Uh, you know, Custer, for example, you know, he had, had you know, had this, this reputation, the boy general in the Civil War. But as David Mills, who, who wrote the article, pointed out, uh, Custer's units always had proportionally much higher casualties than others. You know, and to me, a heroic leader you know, is, is some, someone who, yeah, when, when they have to, they have to fulfill the mission, they fulfill the mission. Uh, but you know, they, they try to do so in, in, in a res- responsible way, responsible to the people that they're commanding. And so, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, given how grossly irresponsible, uh, they, they tended to be, uh, I, you know, I, I, like I said, the, the use of the word hero 
in this context, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm a little bit less comfortable with it. Um, mm. uh, yeah. So, uh, again, you know, heroism to me is, is something a little bit different. Fair enough. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. In fact, uh, there were a few other leaders profiled in the book where it seemed like one of the reasons they were a bad military leader was being too willing to fight. To what extent do you think this is true, kind of continuing off this track of being thinking about responsibility in terms of missions? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good question, right? I think the, the great commanders, you know, they, they, they have to have an element of aggression, Right. Because, you know, they, they have to know when they've got an opportunity, they have to push through and do it to 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 to, to be successful, to win. Um, but again, they, they have to know. And that, that's, you know, maybe a, a part of the answer to that is is, is in the section of, of the leaders that we call clueless, you know, which and, and, you know, uh, Custer is in that section. Um, you know, it it. You know, just, just kind of pressing home the attack for the sake of pressing home the attack and burnishing one's glory, uh, and and being heedless of the circumstances, um, it is you know that I think that's the difference between being a, a great commander who uses aggression when 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 they need to to win versus someone who just keeps attacking for the sake of attacking. Right, Custer, um, you know, notoriously knew that he was vastly outnumbered at the little big horn, but, you know, he decided to split his command, uh, already outnumbered command in, into three smaller units. And the result was, was a disaster when he again, attacked an enemy, uh, uh, who, who vastly outnumbered him. And at the same time had divided up his command. I, I also think there's something to this in terms of when we, when we study military history, and, I, and not so much like this book is intended to, to, to fully counter this, um, but you know, even if, if, if you're dealing with war in, in, in theory, and people talk about the difference between offensive action or defensive actions, um, that you know, Napoleon enjoys this this tremendous rep, reputation, and and you know he he influences sort of the two great philosophers. Of, of warfare in, in the modern era, uh, Jomini and Clausewitz. Uh, and so I think it's very hard for people not to be impressed uh, by what happens on the offensive. If somebody, you know, this is what people study so, you know, so long, so hard is to, to conduct successful, you know, offensive operations. Because if you're the, if, if you're being attacked, then you're reacting to this. It's, it's, it requires in a sense less planning. But I think that there's something about uh, military history and military planning, the connection between these things. I mean, if you're something more than a buff, if you're at a professional military institution, you, know, you kind of you, you kind of look harder at, at offensive action because it's the thing that has involved the greatest amount of planning before it happens. And so um, I think that's, you know, I, I think that kind of inclines us to look at this and, and maybe, you know, to consider aggressive commanders or, you know, people who, you know, had a willingness to fight that they're the first, you know, they're the first people that we look at. Um, and so I think that's, you know, I, I think there's a sort of, I want to say, you know, as, as far as military history being, you know, an, an institution that it inclines us to, to, to look at those things. And that probably inclines, you know, the, the more ambitious commander, 
to demonstrate that they're competent in this, that they can, you know, attack successfully. And to what extent do we focus on the individual versus the institution that they're operating within? How do we assess individual failings versus institutional constraints? Hmm. Uh, that's that's a great question, and and you know, kind of goes back to the you know the our, our concept for the book. Uh, you know, as, as I think I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we you know when we looked at at the topic, uh, the books that we found that dealt with military failure tended to look at it from an institutional, from an organi- organizational perspective, uh, rather than an individual one, and so. I think to some extent our book uh, offers, you know, offers the other side of of, of the equation there, right? The, the role of the individual, um, you know, as far as that relationship goes, uh, you know, we've we've actually got some good examples, uh, I think, in in the book of of that sort of dynamic. Uh, Crassus, uh, the, uh, the the Roman general, is is a good example. Greg Hospitor, who who wrote that uh, um, that particular article. Uh, I think does a really good job of, you know, kind of putting Crassus in the, the context of, of the Roman military establishment. And, you know, w- one of the, I think the thrusts of, of Hospidor's argument is, uh, argument is that, you know, uh, Crassus was, the, the, institu- the, the Roman military institution was so successful, it basically made Crassus kind of lazy because he just thought, that the innate superiority of the Roman military institution would would take care of everything, and, uh, and of course it, it didn't. It led to a disaster. Um, a, a, another example is uh, John Abatello's essay on, on Lewis Brereton, the American uh, Army Air Corps general. Um, you know, we 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 likened him in our introduction to the, the ultimate company man. Uh, Brereton was very much a creature of the institution. And, you know, when, when the time came for him to kind of question the, the orders that he was getting from the institution, if you will, uh, he, he was unable or in, in, incapable of doing that. So he just basically carried out orders, uh, again, without, uh, um, you, know, you know, orders for operations that uh, turned into disaster with, without really questioning them. So I guess, uh, and, and Chuck might have something to add on to this. I guess what I would say is, um, you know, I think military leaders, I mean, they're always going to have institutional constraints, right? You know, in militaries are bureaucracies, uh, uh, you know, uh, just like any other large institutions. I, I think the, 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 you know, the great leaders are able to transcend those constraints when they have to, Conversely, the worst ones, uh, you know, are unable to to, you know, to transcend those those constraints when the circumstances demand, or are un- unwilling. Yeah, and it's. I mean, it's. I think this is. <laughs> it's a great question. Um, I presented a paper not too long ago where I was talking about you know ethos being something of a problem that you know everybody tries to develop, uh, you know, an ethos. And that sometimes that that can get in the way of, of clear thinking because there's there's in a sense a, a social pressure or maybe it's a historical pressure to, to do things in a certain way. Uh, the British Admiral you know, Cunningham commanded the Mediterranean fleet at the time of, of 
the evacuation from Crete in, in World War II uh, is supposed, supposed to have said that, that it takes you know, three years to, talking about risking his ships to rescue uh, British soldiers from Crete, but um, it takes three years to build a ship. It takes 300 to build a tradition. Um, and, you know, that, that's, I think that's a, you know, a really telling comment that, you know, here's, here's somebody. And I think you can also see this also in, in uh, Admiral Sandy Woodward's memoirs on, on the Falklands War, where he talks early on about feeling a certain amount of pressure from all these great figures that, I think that that sometimes, you know, enters into whether it's, you know, your actual you know judgment in terms of how you're making it, but you feel that pressure. Um, and so, you know, you don't want to let down uh, the previous generations or you don't want to not conform to the norm. And I think that's a, a tough thing. And it takes an extraordinary individual uh, to, to, you know, I guess, you know, to see things clearly enough uh, to sort of balance social pressure with an understanding of, of the situations that they're confronting in, in a more immediate sense. Uh, I think most of the people that we're talking about in, in our book failed, you know, failed to do that. Mm. Definitely some significant failures on that front in the book. On a sort of similar front, and in some ways going back to the comment made earlier about Putin, some of the people in the book are on the battlefield themselves and some of the failures come from making bad decisions in that sort of context. But some of them are also about making bad decisions about who is sent out to do the fighting. I'm thinking especially of examples towards the end of the book. How do we think about that? Kind of, Is it the person on the front lines who's the poor leader? Is it the person who sent them there? Is it both? How do we sort of think about that level of decision making? Well, yeah, I think that's, you know, again, kind of going back to something that I I hope I had alluded to earlier. But, um, you know, oftentimes there's enough blame to go around that there are people who make bad strategic level decisions. And then that is going to put someone into a position where as either the operational level commander or as, as somebody commanding on the battlefield, uh, that perhaps they're going to be in a bad situation and it's more, you know, more, more a matter of, of how they got there, but nonetheless, they don't master that, that environment either. And so I think, you know, I don't, I don't want this to seem, you know, the, the simple cop-out answer, but I do think, you know, context is everything in this case that, you know, you'd have to look at each one of these instances where, you know, somebody makes a decision that, that, you know, puts somebody else in a bad, you know, in a, in a bad situation. And is it, you know, who, who does, you know, bear the blame? These are, these are the sorts of, of questions that actually I like to put on tests and I'll tell my cadets, it's like, there's, yeah, there, there's not really a, a right answer to this. I just want to see you, you know, argue through this and, and tell me what, you know, was, was the strategy bad from the, the beginning or was it a failure to, to, you know, develop an operation that would support that. Uh, you know, good example. We just got through talking about the Civil War in one of our classes. Um, and it takes a very long time for, for the Union to get to, to, you know, to grant, uh, to coordinate the efforts of the Union Army. It's not really, you know, if we look at things, change, you know, as far as the tactical situation, it's not that Grant shows up and, and you know, changes anybody's approach to, to how battles are supposed to be fought, really. I mean, not in, not in a grand sense. 
but there's maybe a, an understanding on his part as as far as like what are the limitations in, in the tactical realm, and you know his operations are different. He sustains his operations through. Uh, through through Virginia. I mean, he's guiding the Army of the Potomac. But I think there's a greater awareness on his part of what the tactical limitations of the time are. And then he can incorporate that into his concept of operations, which, you know, is perfectly in sync with his concept of, of you know, the type of strategy that the Union will win if it sticks with attrition. But, you know, Grant's a rare individual. Uh, one, he's got his, his, his hands, you know, on, on two levers there. Um, you know, not everybody gets that. Not everybody has the same amount of control when it comes to, to you know, a war effort. Um, but it's, you know, I think it's, it, he's, he's a rare individual. And I think that's, you know, that's the thing that would not, you know, that would keep him out of our book uh, and put him into a book that deals with the other things about, you know, good commanders. Uh, I think also, uh, just to, to kind of piggyback on that, that the, 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 I think the, the, the question kind of presupposes that the worst military leaders in history are, are also losers. And so, you know, this is something that we considered, uh, you know, you know, going back to the question about the, the traits that make the worst, uh, you know, the, the, you know are, are the worst military leaders in history necessarily uh, uh, losers in battle? And, uh, you know, a couple of examples from our book are, are people who, uh, actually, you know, w- w- won the battles, or at least were on the winning side. Brereton, uh, Beatty, Nogi. Um, so, it, again, I, I don't, it, you know, it, it 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 would seem that you know w- winning and losing would be the most basic you know way to decide if somebody is 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 great or or not. But uh, the conclusion we came to was, you know, it's, it's not quite as simple as that. Hmm which is fascinating and one of the many, I think, useful things that the book helps people think through. You mentioned earlier um, that some amount of surprise, obviously not a huge amount, because you did, as you discussed, kind of open this up very broadly for what people wanted to submit in terms of what counted as worse. A little bit surprised that certain names didn't come up you might have expected. Were there any other surprises um, in the process of discussing, researching, putting this book together? Uh, well, yeah, I, I, again, to, to kind of go back to, uh, uh, what we discussed. Yeah. You know, we, we, uh, we didn't see some of what, what we would have thought would have been, you know, some of the, the obvious, uh, candidates, uh, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, we were surprised that our contributors picked some people who were, you know, sort of off the beaten track, um, you know, as, as far as, as the worst, but, you know, in, in, and, and, and some of them were, you know, uh, uh, again, my, my choice, Baron Ungern Sternberg, Custer, uh, you know, people like that, actually, you know, they, they, they weren't commanders of, of large forces in, in large campaigns or wars, you know, the relatively small unit actions. Um, but again, you know, uh, we, we, it's, it's, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, who, who makes is is the worst military leader in history you know it's 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 not really the size that counts uh in this case you know um and and that's another reason why we wanted to keep keep our approach organic let you know let the contributors pick and let them explain and then we see what lessons we we can pull from it um so 
you know, ha- ha- having said that, I guess, you know, uh, it, 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 it did come as somewhat of a surprise when we did, you know, get people who, you know, again, were, were ostensibly the winners, uh, like General Nogi at Port Arthur. He's, he's usually held up as a great, well, he is held up as a great hero in Japan uh, for that victory. Um, so, you know, that one was a little bit surprising. But you know, when you read the essay and you find out, you know, just how, how terrible his, his campaign was and how many people he, he needlessly got, his own people, including two of his own sons, were, were basically needlessly killed in the campaign. It, it makes sense. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, we mentioned this in the, the introduction that you know, this, this wasn't intended to be, you know, the definitive list of the worst 15 commanders, um, but that it would, you know, hey, we, we could read through this and, and we could start having these conversations. And as, as I mentioned earlier, too, that, you know, <laughs> you know looking at Professor Friedman or Sir Lawrence Friedman uh, and his comments. Obviously, there were people on on his list that that he would have expected to have seen. That one of the fun things about this uh, is that you know, we have the opportunity to go to conferences. I, my 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 colleagues in, in a number of instances, I also consider to be good friends, uh, and and we've had some decent conversations over a couple of beers about you know who should have been on there or you know why somebody shouldn't have been on there. Uh, and so, I, you know, I, it's, I think it's interesting. It, it, it's a good thing to, to discuss, you know, with, with, with cadets without beer and then colleagues with beers. It, it, you know, it, I think it's a, a good little intellectual exercise. Uh, and the, the surprise, uh, I, I think, would be how adamant people are uh, about, you know, who didn't make the list. And that's sort of the thing that, that uh, you know, I like because it, it like I said, it drives us into to other conversations. And so, um, you know, maybe, maybe somebody, their next book is going to be, you know, a more definitive list of, of the worst leaders in history, in which case they'll probably, you know, uh, take a good deal of hit or, pardon me, take a good deal of heat, you know, for, for not hitting on the same people that, that you know, the, the next round of critics will have in mind. Yeah, I think this book does a really good job of laying a bunch of things out there that then people can kind of, it opens up, as you said, a lot of conversations and discussion, um, which is always an interesting thing to come out of a book. Um, And speaking of kind of what it could provoke in future, is there anything either of you or both of you might be working on next now that this book is off your plate that you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, Well, uh... Yeah, I'm uh, I'm working on a book on uh, the military history of East Asia, so uh, this is going to be a a, a obviously very broad history, uh, and um, again, uh, as uh, uh, I'm a Japanese historian, Asian historian by training, so uh, this way I'm combining, uh, you know, my interest in military history and and, and Asian history. Uh, what I'm hoping to do with this book is you know, there, there are plenty of books on individual, you know, kind of national military histories available in English, uh, you know, histories of the Chinese military, the Japanese. Uh, but as far as I know, nobody's really taken a look at the, 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 the military history of the region itself and the interactions of uh, the East Asian uh, powers. So that's kind of what I'm working on now. 
right now I'm actually trying to finish up a conference paper. I have a conference in a couple of weeks and I'm obviously behind schedule on this, but uh, combining my interest in, in Russian history and naval history, uh, writing a paper entitled The Best Bellwether is a, a Bad Navy and using Russian uh, naval developments uh, as as basically a, a, a means to, to measure Russia's attempts at a, attaining modernity. Um, but there's... There's a number of conference papers lying around that I'm trying to, to beat into shape uh, just just to, to finish, you know, finish some assignments, close the, the loop on a few things. Uh, if, if I could find, co- you know, if this is going out to a broader audience of, of academics, uh, if I could find a, a, a larger group of people who would want to contribute, my, you know, my, my sort of you know, back of the mind pet project would be that. Uh, most general military history texts or, or general works in military history don't don't connect very well with our world history texts. That we we have two core classes here. We have a, a core military class and we have a core world history class. And the core military class, I think, does a, a, a poor job of explaining to people who are going to be students of world history uh, as as to why the world looks as, as it does. And so uh, I, th- I think sort of reconciling those two things uh, would be, and I know there are world military history texts that are out there. They tend to be fairly short and, you know, whatever. But I, I would think that to, to do that project right would would be, uh, you know, very interesting. But I think it would require you know, more than a single author. Well, who knows who might be listening? So thank you both for sharing those future projects with us. And of course, listeners can read as well the book we've been discussing, The Worst Military Leaders in History. John, Chuck, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.